Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking with Dr. Adam Price, the author of He's Not Lazy, Empowering Your Son to Believe in Himself. And before we talk to him, we're going to just take a second to talk about the sheer frustration of an unmotivated teen. Not that Steph and I would know that. No. And Mm -mm. is there anything we can do to change this? In a word, no. All right, let's wrap it up. Oh, well, actually, no. We had a story where we did change it, but not in any way that a, that a parenting expert would tell you. But one kid was like slacking off, just kind of like seeing how, testing how little you could do to coast. Mm. And so we started getting emails from the school that were, I think, auto-generated from that whole system. Like if you don't fill in a, a that the assignment's in, it puts out an email to the contact person. And so Dan and I kept getting these emails and we would forward them to child. And child would say, I know, I know. And eventually (laughs) child would say, oh my God, can you stop sending me those emails? I know. And so I said, I can totally stop sending you the emails. Get the work in on time. And it worked. It totally worked. (laughs) That's a good one. Right, but there's no way to, there's no real way to replicate that story because, you know, it was just like it it lent itself. He he didn't even know how much he gave me a gift at that moment. (laughs) Totally. Well, I always, I always would say to my friends, like, I can't, there's a billion examples, but where I'd be like, oh my God, like, why doesn't he want to do this? Or why, you know, you, you say it a million times and like, how many times have we heard like they'll get to it on you know on their own time or they're on their terms or they have to come to it themselves? I'm like, yes, but can't I kill myself trying? Because that seemed to be my um my method. I'm here to tell you, doesn't work. I know it's sho- it's shocking and relevatory. I I know so shocking. Sue, you can pick yourself up off the floor. She she almost like fainted from how shocked she was. I'm looking for a quote that one of our experts said that growing up is persistent. Independence is persistent. And I I just loved it because, I mean, of course, there's there's nothing we can say that's true for every kid. Yeah. But we've had many speakers say something like that. Like, there's not a whole lot you can do to get in the way of your kid growing up. But along the way, it can be painful. Mm. So I have one other story, which is, you know, I do have a kid who just moves slower than everyone else. Mm. And it does often feel like laziness. But I, I think I think we're going to learn from Dr. Adam Price that lazy is not really, it's not a definition of a child. There's something else going on underneath it. And that that kid, you know, just it, the operating of life is just at a, a different pace. And after enough time, it's apparent that the destination is always achieved. The goal is always yeah. achieved. But in the middle, you can be like, what do we do here? Like, how do we just like let this burn, crash and burn? But my kids are a little older, so we have enough looking backwards to say that at her own pace was just slower. That's all it was. It was just slower. Well, and also I think about our eye, our generation, our eyes are so much more on them than my parents were on us. So I'm not sure the observations would be so different. I think they just didn't make them, <laughs> you know? I just think we we think about it more and we observe more and we, you know, speculate and we... Eh, I don't think anybody was doing that about me and my siblings. 
they cared and they were where they needed to, but I, I, you know, parenting was not a verb then. That's all I'll say. Yeah, well, it's not to say that that was better because right now our kids are struggling so much after the pandemic and trying to figure out and just living through that whole experience of trying to figure out life without structure. So they were in our face in a way that that even before, if we were too much on top of them, this was like on steroids because how do you ignore not doing what you need to do when they're literally in your space 24-7? So I think what we've just experienced, you know, we can use all the words unprecedented, uh, you know, all of those words. But at the end of the day, our kids have to recover from that experience and yeah. then now figure out how to re-enter in a way, and us too, by the way, not just mm. our kids, but but them in particular, because that's who we focus on, <laughs> yeah. on parenting teenagers. You and I have talked about that just even, I think, on our Facebook Live last week about having to navigate literally, like, you know, not metaphorically, literally navigate things like into a restaurant, looking, you know, into a busy place maybe you haven't been and just so much thought. I'm like, oh, yeah, this feels different. This is weird. Did I want to do this? Then I'm reading like new articles about like maybe still wearing masks inside. I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like my head's going to explode. Yeah. So I don't know. Do we have anything else to say about the, the, I I want, I'm doing air quotes because I think we're going to find out that the lazy kid is not, you know, it's kind of like, is that really the definition of a child? Can you move your air quotes in? I couldn't see them because they were too wide. Yeah. But, but if you're listening now, (laughs) no matter how close I move them, you're You're still not seeing them. them? You're still not seeing them. It's all about me. So the air quotes around a lazy kid is, Mm -hmm. it's something else going on. It's fear, it's slower pace, it's a host Mm -hmm. of other things that we're going to talk about with Adam. But out of your kids, like, did you have any times where you just felt like this is not going well, this is not being tended to? Yeah, I mean, and especially I move at such a rapid clip, as you know, and our oldest has his own pace, his own pace. Doesn't seem to hinder him. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be an issue, but boy, it sure was my issue. Oh, so it was it was a struggle along the way. Oh my God, yeah. Oh my goodness. I think part of it, like, you know, part of it is getting to know our kids in a way that is about who they're, they are and not who, like, you know, who doesn't think that you're going to have kids and they're going to be just like you? Oh my God, totally. Right? Like, the, I mean, I think that's the assumption. And even my kids who are more like my husband, I could understand because I can do that, like, clean, like, well, you're him and you're me. and But sometimes you get somebody who's neither of you. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah, it is really an interesting thing. And I think that in trying to make them ourselves or our pace or our priorities, that has never worked. <laughs> I and again, not from a lack of trying. <laughs> it has never worked. And I, like I said, kill myself trying, but they get to it when they're gonna get to it. And and it's funny, it is again one of those things you look back on, and you can say, Oh yeah, it had to go that way, or it had to take that path, or this is the pace this one moves at. And I see it, that's just who this person is, you know? But it's it's definitely not easy as a parent. Hopefully, what we're gonna find out is it doesn't have to be how we respond to it. So I have a a kid who's really shy, not so much as an adult, but really as a kid. And I would, I just thought if I gave like tips on how to move in that way in the world, that first of all, I'd get a thank you. (laughs) 
oh, thank you so much for telling me I should go over and say hello to that person over there. But then also like that it could be done, that it wasn't about... So I think all of these conversations about lazy and shy are all labels that just mean they're not like you. Like it, it's kind of, shy is kind of negative in our society. It like is. We think, we think you could teach somebody out of it and lazy also, I guess, at least from our experience. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you can learn to deal with it differently. And that is what we are going to learn with our expert today. Up next is our conversation with Dr. Adam Price. We can't wait for you to join us. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. today is Dr. Adam Price, a clinical psychologist with more than 20 years of experience working with children and teens. Price has published articles on family and child therapy in publications including the Wall Street Journal and Family Circle, and is the author of the book, He's Not Lazy, Empowering Your Son to Believe in Himself. Price has presented widely to both parents and educators on opting out, child development, and learning disabilities, and has appeared on Good Day New York and other programs to discuss topics ranging from discipline to the impact of video games on children. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Price. Adam, you wrote the book, He's Not Lazy. We use the word lazy. We use it like kind of when we're frustrated with our kids and really, really frustrated with our kids. Could it mean something else? I think that's that's a really excellent question, Sue. That gets at the heart of the book I wrote, He's Not Lazy, Empowering Your Son to Believe in Himself, because my philosophy is that there's no such thing as laziness. 
Although my 28-year-old son, who just got his doctorate from UCLA in, in, in the field of psychology, came to me the other day and he said, Dad, you know you wrote that book about laziness, right? And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, and you know, some of it was based on me, right? And I said, yeah, actually, I have to admit some of it was. And he said, well, Dad, I got to tell you something. I'm lazy. <laughs> but I, I think that even though, you know, my, my statement is I don't believe in laziness, I think it's really about underlying issues that keep teens and probably adults, but teens from not performing up to their potential because I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I've started a single, single human campaign against he's not working up to his potential, which we can get into later, but holding them back from working and discovering their capabilities, which is, I think, more, more positive and important. So how do we get to the bottom of what's causing our teen to appear lazy? There are a few kind of uh, low-hanging fruit, and I'm always interested in the low-hanging fruits, fruit starting with the most obvious. And I think that so many times the issue is more about fear. The issue is more about being afraid to try and fail. And we live in such a pressured society and our teens, you know, it's, it's well documented or under so much pressure. So no one feels like they can make a misstep. You know, God forbid a kid makes a misstep, gets a C and doesn't get into Harvard. And that's real pressure that parents and kids feel these days. But the fear of not being good enough, the fear of basically the fear of being able to have a childhood and, and try new things and, and not be good at all of them, I think is primary. So you couple that with avoidance, which is a teenager's go-to mechanism for dealing with feelings, difficult feelings is just to avoid them. And then I think that that explains a lot of why teens hold back. And, and you know, we can talk more. I, I like to talk a lot about, I think it's pretty well known, but Carol Dweck's ideas about growth and fixed mindsets. The idea basically that in a nutshell, people that believe they can do better actually do better. People that have the I think I can, the little engine that I that could think I can mentality, because people that have that mentality, when they get to something that's challenging and difficult and they're unsure about, they know that if they continue, if they work harder, if they practice, if they learn a new skill, if they don't avoid those difficult feelings, they're gonna figure it out. They're gonna they're gonna master it, they're gonna do better than they would have otherwise. So I think that that's all part of it. Learning disabilities and ADD are certainly another aspect of it, particularly ADD and ADHD, which to me is kind of like the silent learning disability. We don't really call it a learning disability, but it has such an impact on learning. So I think those two things. And, and then the third thing, which is kind of covered by the first two in many ways, is that kids need time to develop, especially teenage boys. And somehow we've forgotten that. Somehow we need them to be efficient, effective homework producing machines when they're 16 and 17 and they're just not and some boys need more time to develop girls too of course but then others and especially kids who have ADD need more time to develop it's so good to hear like that there's something likely underlying and that as parents we don't have to feel like our kids are like really doing something to us by not following through but the biggest transition from getting like an expert to talk about what's going on with our teenagers is trying to figure out how do we as parents have either a conversation or, I don't know, like change our own behavior. What's the way to go out from what you just said and change something in our own homes when there's so much tension around the conversation that's been, oh my God, you're so lazy, get up and do it. I think that there is one thing that is really helpful to remember and I can tell you a little antidote, but that th antidote, but that thing is that the word silent 
and the word listen have exactly the same letters in them. It's an anagram, right? And so, so listening and listening is so important and not just listening, but listening in an empathic way is where we have to start because kids will not hear us until they feel that we've heard them. They need to know that we not only hear what they're experiencing and what they're feeling, but that we think it's valid. And many parents make the mistake of thinking that by lending some validity to what they're feeling, we're agreeing with what they're saying. And of course, we know you can't agree with every knucklehead thing that a teenager says. That would be preposterous. And we don't want to do it. But that, so, so I was having a family session just last night with a young man who's got some significant issues with alcohol and depression. And it was the first family session. And he, he was very resistant to having that session. He did not want to have a session with his parents because he always felt shot down. He always felt like it was two against one and in some cases three against one when the, when the former therapist had joined in. They started talking about an episode where the mom had looked at his phone and read his voice memos and deleted some of them. And when he confronted her, she went into this litany of all the things that he had done that made her nervous and worried and felt justified in doing it. And he felt absolutely he felt like she was using all of this stuff against him. Now, that wasn't her intention. This mother was very worried, very concerned and very anxious. But she went right to talking rather than listening. And so I started talking to the parents with the young man there about empathic listening, about being quiet, asking questions. It's really that simple. We can get a little fancier, but just asking, you know, what's your, what, what do you mean? What are you feeling about that? And the father, the father piped in, but doesn't that mean we're, we're agreeing with everything that he wants to do, that he says it's okay to, to drink? And I said, no, that's not, that's not it at all. And parents, you still have to set limits, right? You still have to say you can and can't do this, but that's a separate conversation. So I think that that is the most important. So can you talk a little bit, you, you started to go down this path, actual language we can use with them. Obviously, we're going to be listening to them, but how do we give us um, a few uh, opening lines or um, affirmations along the way? What does it sound like? Well, first of all, it sounds like being quiet. That's really what it sounds like. It sounds like nothing. I like to use that 80%, 20% rule or the 75, 25% rule, which is, you know, talk 25% of the time, listen 75%. And so many times parents will say they had a great conversation with their kid. And what they're saying is they really like what they said to their kid, um, but they don't necessarily know how their kid feels. So, you know, so an example of, I mean, this is maybe maybe a silly example, but a kid comes home from, from baseball practice and says, you know, I hate baseball. I want to quit the team. And so the parent says, you can't quit the team. It's a, it's a commitment. You made the commitment at the beginning of the season and you have to stick with it. Perfectly legitimate, reasonable thing for a parent to say, important lesson to teach a child, not just at that particular point in the conversation. And so the child says, but I really hate it. And the parent says, well, okay, you don't, you know, but you have to continue. So the child says, okay, and walks away thinking, well, I don't have to try. So let's rewind that and do it in a different way. So the child comes in and says, I really hate baseball. So the parent says, oh, I didn't know that. I thought you liked baseball. Why? Maybe the kid says nothing. It says, I just don't like it. The parent says, oh, well, I don't know. You know, tell me more. I need to understand. But the uh, kid says, well, you know, the coach yelled at me today. Why did the coach yell at you today? What happened? That's terrible. Well, because I struck out. Oh, so you struck out. So I guess you, you know, you didn't feel like you played that well. Maybe we can get you some batting lessons. You think that would help? Yeah, let's try that. Okay, because, you know, I'd like to see you finish out the season because you made a commitment. Now, of course, 
I made that up, so I'm perfectly, right? It doesn't always go that way. But it doesn't have to be any kind of specific language other than tell me more about that. There are some steps parents can take, and you know, I talk about these in the book, and I'd like to plug my new book, which is coming out October 19th. The paperback of, of He's Not Lazy is coming about, but, but in addition, on October 19th, I wrote a, a companion, really, that's for teens and parents. A lot of parents will come up to me and say, um, you know, can my teen read your book? He's not lazy. And I'm like, no, that's really written for parents. Parents of a 30-year-old man once came up to me and asked me if their son could read the book. I said, it's too late for that. So I wrote a book for teenagers, which is really a, a lot of exercise in, in workbooks. And we can talk more about that. That's called uh, The You're Not Lazy Guide to Having Better Grades and a Great Life. And the reason that it says it better life is because it's really about helping teens to clarify their values and de- determine where they want their life to go and think about their life in the future. There's a whole there's a whole chapter on your, your a conversation with your future self. And I actually have older t- older you know young adults who write letters to their to their 15 year old self. So so to get kids thinking about that. But at any rate, it's about it's about letting teens decide where they want to go. But I'm sorry, I I divert. I, 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 I divert digress. In both of the books, I talk about, and in the paperback uh, especially, I talk about a method for listening to kids, right? A method for empathic listening. And, you know, there are certain steps. Um, Mirroring, which is just repeating back in in a child's own language what they said to you, just so that they know you understood it, which sounds a little bit uh, cliche, but it really works. The next thing is labeling. Once you kind of have a sense about what the what the feelings might be underneath the conversation. For example, in the example I use, it wasn't about hating baseball. It wasn't even about the coach. It was about the kids doubting their own ability. But they didn't come in and say that, right, because kids never do. So once you have an idea about it, kind of taking a stab at it and seeing if you have an idea about whether that's right or not, it could be wrong. You could be not knowing what their feeling is. But this is, you know, it's the same way I do, I do therapy. It's hypothesis testing. You might be feeling this way. I don't know. Let me find out and see. And if not, we'll figure out what it is. And then bringing it all together kind of, you know, into a summary that includes paraphrasing what they said, labeling the feeling. Pretty simple stuff. I actually, I actually uh, quote Chris Voss, who is a, a former FBI hostage negotiator because sometimes teenagers hold us hostage but also because he wrote this really interesting book and there's a whole chapter on what he calls tactical empathy so it's not just listening and understanding for listening sake it's listening and understanding for a goal right the goal is in his case to have the uh, criminal release the hostages in in our case it's to have our kids think about reason through a solution on their own and maybe once they know that we've heard them come up with their own suggestion or listen to our suggestion like, as I said before, you know, they'll the listen once they feel heard. Okay, so we asked our Your Teen family to give us their questions. So Tara's question is about re-entry. I'm sure so many of our son's self-esteem, academic performance, and social connections took a huge, long tumble. How do we help them climb back out? I'm worried that this is how it is now has set in. The grades, the social isolation, hanging out in the room all day. This is such a you know compelling question, and I think that and you know a lot of my colleagues and I are talking about this because it's going to take two forms, right? There are the kids and adults, by the way. I know a few adults who don't want to run back to work either, who don't want to go back to work to school because they have social anxiety, because the pressures are too great, and they found it much more comfortable and easy to go to school in their pajamas and to run downstairs is more comfortable, get a snack. And they not only did they not miss the socialization, but they were relieved not to have to experience it because it created anxiety. So COVID gave them a perfect 
year and a half of avoidance, right? So those kids, it's going to be more of a challenge to get back to school. The kids who are more social, who don't have that anxiety and are really looking forward to going back, I think that it won't be, I think it'll be a relief. I think that they'll be happy to go back. But the thing is, this has been so hard for the kids and college students I see because it's time that they can't get back. You know, you can't have another prom, you can't have another freshman year of college. At my age, if I don't go out to dinner another Friday or Saturday night, I can live with that. I'll be okay. But, you know, it's just so different. So for the, for the kids that are, have struggled more, you know, it, it, I, I hope that schools are, I, I think it takes a lot of talking to kids about it and a lot of talking about why it felt more comfortable to be home and why, uh, what's going to be hard about going back to school and empathic listening, and then communicating that that's not really a, a way that we can live in the world. It's not really practical. It's not really going to work. And it's probably better to face your fears. So let's make a plan for how to do that. In real extreme cases, I would imagine it's similar to school phobia where kids have to do it gradually. You know, school, school professionals are pretty, pretty knowledgeable about how to help a kid who refuses to go to school, which is to do it gradually, to drop off a kid a little bit later than everybody else so that it's not as overwhelming, not as anxiety provoking. This is more for little kids. But I think reentry is going to need to have some discussion for, those, for that group of children and young adults. That's excellent. Here's one from Gabriella. How can I help my teen keep motivated and continue doing the things he likes when he gets so discouraged because things don't turn out perfect as he had pictured in his mind? The same goes for trying out new things he's interested in, but thinks he has to be good at before giving them a try so he, quote, doesn't make a fool of himself, which you touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of um, no room for error. So we could do a whole podcast on perfectionism because it's such a huge issue, especially now. Perfectionism is, and I'll tell people they're perfectionistic and they'll say, no, I'm not. My room's a mess or this is a mess. The thing that's important to remember is that perfectionism doesn't mean you want to do everything perfect. It means there are certain things that you feel like you have to do perfectly. And if you don't, you're going to be failing. So the problem with perfectionism, if I understand the question correctly, is that it's not about the standards you set for yourself because it's okay to set high standards. It's more about what happens if you don't achieve them. If you don't achieve them, how much, how bad do you feel about yourself? What do you think it reveals about yourself? What are you worried that people will think of you? So I think the first thing parents need to do is to check their own perfectionism because the apple often doesn't fall far from the tree. And whether we call it ambition or overachievement, it's important that parents are aware of their own difficulty having compassion for themselves and allowing themselves to be less than perfect. And I think that's an important start. And even talking to kids about that, it's about really, as I said before, allowing kids to really feel safe making mistakes, to feel like that's not only okay, but it's a part of life and a part of childhood. Someone I know says that life is, you know, uh, 10% breakage and loss, you know, and I, I love that because for me, I'm always losing something. So I just remember that's, that's, I'm up to 15%, but that's okay. Okay, here's one from Chris. How do you inspire or motivate a boy who is content putting in the minimum amount of effort on everything? He will do the bare minimum to get a passing grade, which usually comes very easily to him, the minimum number of chores from a list he shares with his brother, and the minimum number of books for summer reading. The list goes on. Should I just let it go? So read my book, and and I call him Mr. Because that's what I really, that's the question I tried to address. And sorry for the plug, but it's, but that really is the issue. And so I call these kids Mr. Bare Minimum. I also call them opt-outs because this is their response to the pressure that they feel. You know, they feel like there's more asset than that they can handle. So they fly under the radar. 
of real trouble, but they still cause their parents a lot of worry and consternation by doing just the minimum. They've kind of figured it out. I think that knowing a few things about teenagers is really important. The first thing I think I've already stressed, and that's that they're developing creatures and they need time to do it. The second thing is they really need to feel like they have a choice, like they have autonomy. And autonomy is not the freedom to do whatever you want. It's the freedom to make your choices and then live with the consequences. So part of it is holding kids accountable for the choices they make and not, not bailing them out. Part of it is is talking to them more about what what your expectations are, what your reasonable expectations are, which is not what you want, the grades you want them to get, but the grades that you think are reasonable for them to get. And then to set certain parameters, I don't think that just letting them do what they want is is good parenting. You know, I always say that kids are the engine, they're pulling the train, but parents have to keep them on the track. And then to set up a plan for what you think they need to do and what they agree to do, and then holding them accountable by you know, if you expect them to get all B's and they don't, that means that they need more time to study, so less time to play video games. What I really encourage or discourage is power struggles, micromanaging and power struggles, because the parent is always going to lose with a power struggle because the teen has more to gain. They're, they're, they're fighting for their independence and autonomy, and they're, they're willing to blow the roof off the house to get it, and parents aren't. And so power struggles are really important, and micromanaging is just going to create more conflict. That is such a great lead into the next question from Jen, but it really could say, Steph, how can I encourage without nagging? Encourage without nagging. Encourage to do homework, encourage to take out the trash, encourage to play video games. <laughs> Whatever they hear is nagging. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess yes <laughs> to all of those. Well, you know, nagging is the, is the teenage equivalent to, you know, time for your nap. Here's your first warning. Here's your second warning. Here's your third warning. Here's your fourth warning. And so I think that setting, again, setting expectations and then having reasonable limits that follow them is the way not to nag because nobody feels good after being nagged. I think that setting expectations, and, and, and I see parents make a mistake a lot of setting limits that are not really reasonable. I always say, you know, it's not important what the limit is as long as you enforce it and are consistent with it. Don't ground a kid for a week. Don't start there because what are you going to do after that? You know, uh, take away their electronics for the next day and then reset and give them a chance to, you know, on the, on the third day to, to earn them back. Okay, Christina wants to know, well, here's her kid. She suggests that he do an extracurricular, and it might even be required that he have electives at school. And he says, I'm not interested in anything. Yeah, that's, that is a good example of setting a parameter or a limit and not micromanaging, because I think it's important for kids to be engaged in something else out of, outside of school. I think sometimes they learn more than they do in school or lessons that they can't possibly learn in school. Having a job, like what happened to that? That is such a wonderful thing for kids to do, bagging groceries. I work with a young man who, you know, quit baseball. He quit uh, soccer. He quit this. He quit that. He finally got it. And he's a smart, talented kid uh, who's doing okay in school. He finally got a job bagging groceries at the local grocery store. And he is so happy. He is learning. He's making money. He's interacting. It's challenging some of his social anxiety. So, so I think what's important is saying, you got to do something. We will lock you out of the house from three to five. What you want to do is up to you. So if you want to join the debate team or you want to play a sport or you want to get a job or you want to volunteer, you can, you can, if you figure it out, we'll help you if you need some help, but you got to do something. I just want to point out that you were laughing when you said locking him out of the house. I was laughing, yeah, because I don't really believe Because someone will listen and be like, I heard Dr. Adam Price say I should lock (laughs) you out of the house. I was hoping the laugh would communicate that, Sue, but thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I'm not (laughs) in in locking kids out of the house. How about punishment? 
does that work? Consequences, incentives, you know, all the things that we call them. What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, of course they work. And, and they work in different ways depending on the age of the kid. But we're talking about teenagers. So for teenagers, it's, it's not, you know, we call it, you know, aversive or positive reinforcement, right? It's not trying to train the kids to have a certain behavior anymore because I don't think teenagers are really trainable. I think, you, you know, that's where, that's where you can get into a big power struggle. It's about holding them accountable. Because as I said before, accountability is, is the ability to make a decision, but you have to face the consequences. And in the workbook, actually, every chapter, the, the, one of the themes of the workbook is how can you hold yourself accountable? You're so sick of having your parents nag you. You're so sick of having your parents on your back. Well, that's because they're doing all the heavy lifting. Why don't you see what you want to do and then hold yourself accountable? And at the end of each chapter, I ask kids, depending on that theme, what can you do? Or here's some suggestions for holding yourself accountable. So I think for parents, there are times when parents need to step in and say, if you don't do this, this is what will happen. This is how the world works. We live in a family. In a family, everybody has to help out and pitch in in some way. If someone doesn't pitch in in some way, this is what's going to happen. So it's more about that than it's about I'm going to ground you every time you don't take out the trash and expect you eventually to learn it. Maybe the kid is just going to be grounded, you know, and, and never take out the trash. But that's that that is why I think punishments work as well as I mean, kids also need to be, you know, their, their behavior needs to be, mo- especially as teenagers, monitored and limited so that they don't get into trouble so that they stay safe. So setting a curfew is not really a punishment. It's more of a boundary to make sure the kids stay safe. But we do want to punish our kids even when we know that it's wrong because we're angry. There's two questions that we got that are coming down to the same exact thing, which I guess all of this is around the same thing. Our kids don't do what we ask them, and it's infuriating. (laughs) And so one mom says, should I sit down next to him after school every day and go over his portal, his online school portal, and not let him do anything until he's done with that? And the other mom says the kid isn't doing, bringing down water bottles, like, just over and over again, we ask them, they may say yes and not do it. They may say no, they may ignore us. So do we prioritize those things? All of these things reflect something so big that we feel like our voice does not get heard and it doesn't create a reaction. That's interesting because that's a whole different question. And I'll answer that part of it first. But teenagers need need parents as much as little kids do, even more so. They just need them in the background. So just because your kid isn't taking their water bottle and putting it in the recycling bin doesn't mean you're not important in their life. It doesn't mean that they don't value you and look up to you and, 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 and care about you or what you say. So, you know, taking that personally is going to lead to problems because we don't always see the signs of when we're, we're impacting our teenagers. Sometimes we have to wait till they grow up and that can be, that can be frustrating. You know, I like to say parenting is not a skill, it's a relationship. I mean, as long as you trust the relationship, things will be okay. So I think, I think you have to choose your battles. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to say, you know, it really pisses me off when you leave that water bottle. You know, it pisses me off every day. It's okay. I mean, when you're in a relationship, you get mad at people and you express your anger. You have to think about choosing your battles and where they come from. So you could sit down with your kid every day after school and monitor their homework. That will lead to two things. Either your kid will really resent you and scream and yell and not do their homework, or they will become reliant on you and expect you there, and then they'll need you in college and on their first job, which happens. So I think that's not great. Better to take a deep breath, know that it's okay if they don't get an A or a B, and set the parameters that are reasonable and let them figure it out for themselves. Because that's really what we want to teach teenagers how to do is 
figure things out for themselves. The water bottle idea, I, I do know a parent who put, a, put the water bottles in his kid's backpack every night. And then when the kid got to school the next day, they would open the backpack and there would be a bunch of water bottles. The, the parent felt better. I thought it was funny. I don't think it really impacted the kid's behavior, but that's fine. <laughs> the thing about the water bottles is, and, and I don't mean to be critical of anybody. I'm no different in my parenting. That ship sailed a long time ago. You know, as a generation, we have held kids less accountable to helping out around the house. Madeline Levine has a line, The Price of Privilege is one of her books, you know, don't treat kids like royalty whose only job is to bring honor to the family by getting good grades and getting into a great school. You know, they still got to take out the trash. But if we didn't, if we didn't instill that in them when they were young and be consistent with it, we're probably, the ship has probably sailed. I don't think that that means that they're going to be living a trail of water bottles wherever they go, you know, in life. I think they'll figure it out. But you have to decide if that's really worth the battle for you. Because that's a hard one to win sometimes. I want to redo on that chore thing. <laughs> I want to make it a priority. I don't, I don't know how we all got sucked into that. I mean, not all, because some people did it, but... My so-called lazy son still comes home at 28 and leaves the milk on the counter. I don't understand it, but I do know that the lovely woman that he lives with does not tolerate it, and he doesn't do it at home. <laughs> That's funny. That's fine. That's fine. That works for me. Yeah. All right, so we're going to finish with the same question we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about parenting teens? I think that the biggest myth about parenting teens, well, there are two things I touched on, actually. The first is, and I think it's really so important for parents to understand, is they really do need us. And I think it's a myth that we think that they don't, because they tell us they don't. But I think they really do. It's just a different kind of need and a different kind of relationship. You know, they're not just adults with less miles on them. Their brains are not, by a stretch of the imagination, fully developed. And this is well known now, but the executive function, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, planning and organization, that's all under construction during during adolescence. It's all being reorganized and not really reorganized, but being uh, 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 evened out. And their emotions are not nearly, you know, they don't have control over their emotions or impulse control. You add hormones into that and everything else. So I think it's important that, you know, to, to recognize that sometimes they seem really mature and that's great because it means they're moving in that direction, right? But at other times they seem like they're a four-year-old. It doesn't mean that they're stuck being a four-year-old. It's just, that's the nature of being an adolescent. Dr. Adam Price, thank you so much. The next time I talk with you, I really want to talk about this idea of not taking it personally which sounds really simple, but is something that is so hard. And when you said that, I thought there's hours in that conversation that we need to give over to parents because it, if you can pull yourself away with it, away from it, it just changes your relationship. I'm, you know, we're all still working on it, but I do know that it's, it's hard and we need to talk about it. So Dr. Adam Price, thank you so much. Thank you both. It's always a pleasure to see you and to uh, have this opportunity to, to talk to your parents. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article, and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. 
please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about your team with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greenie. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.